We are going to be closing out uh, chapter 23 of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, we finished the curses on the scribes and the Pharisees. And I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, because uh, that's what I do. Uh, we're hitting an area that I'm not super comfortable with. Not super comfortable. Um, and, and, and we're starting here in chapter 23, verse 37, which is a prelude to the Olivet Discourse. How many of you have heard of the Olivet Discourse? Guess where we get the name of the church from? Huh, how about that? The Olivet Discourse. So this is, this is one of those speeches that Jesus gives on the Mount of Olives, and that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. Um, I'm not really comfortable with, comfortable with it because I have not personally spent a great deal of time studying it, nor have I done a lot of study in the area of eschatology. How many of you have heard of eschatology before? Fewer hands. Nope, that's one of them big words. Uh, eschatology, of course, the uh, ology at the back end of it means it's a study of, right? And the, the front is the eschaton or the end times. So I have not done a lot of study in the end times material. I've not put a lot of effort and time into that. Um, it's just the way it is. Uh, there are so many different camps and schools of thought and controversy surrounding the end times that I just haven't been able to dig into it the way I would like to. Have any of you studied the end times before? Like really studied the end times? There's a lot of stuff that goes on when you start talking about the end times. Um, so, with that being said, uh, there is a lot that we can learn from chapter 24 and, and chapter 25. Um, Mark 13 is, is also the Olivet Discourse. But before we get there, we have to go through this prelude, which is today's passage. And this little prelude, this, I mean, it's short. Uh, this isn't quite the shortest passage I've preached on. I have preached on one verse before. Um, fortunately for you, I won't take as long as I did then to do one verse. Um, but this is, this is only four or five verses. Um, with this introduction, um, we're going we're gonna to see how the, the, the previous passages and this passage are tied together, and uh, hopefully some things that maybe you've never seen before at this end of Matthew's Gospel. So I'm going to invite you all to stand as I read our passage for today. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your promise that it will not return void when we send your word out among your people, it will do what you purposed for it to do. Father, help us to learn this morning and help us to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So, hopefully you can see how this ties together with the curse that Jesus just pronounced on the Pharisees. The, the last curse was because of their false indignation about their ancestors killing the prophets and the heroes of the faith, right? Well, here Jesus dives right in by kind of tying these two thoughts together. But before we get to that little statement about them being the city that kills the prophets and stones the people who are sent to it, I want you to notice something that you may have never seen before. The very beginning of the passage, verse 37, the first three words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, is that significant? Okay. There are only about 15 times in the Bible, total, where you see someone, or in this case, the people represented by something, Jerusalem, addressed in this manner. In the book of Genesis, God calls out to Abraham. Uh, he, he's, he's spoken to Abraham. And he said, I want you to sacrifice your one and only son, Abraham, uh, uh, Isaac. I want you to take him to the mountain where I'm going to show you. I want you to prepare the sacrifice, and I want you to kill him. And Abraham says, okay, as, as, as you command, that's what I'm going to do. So he takes Isaac, and he goes, and he builds the altar, and he gets the wood ready, and everything's good to go. And, and Isaac all of a sudden gets this epiphany. Uh, hey, hey, Dad, <laughs> we forgot something. Where's the sheep? And Abraham says, God will provide right? And then he ties Isaac up and lays him down on the altar, and he's about to plunge the knife into his heart, and God calls out, Abraham, Abraham, stop, right? In the book of Exodus, we have the story of, of Moses, how he's, he's born, his parents hide him because the male children are supposed to be put to death, and so they hide him for as long as they can. When they can't hide him anymore, his mother puts him in the little basket and floats him down the river where he is discovered by the Egyptian princess and he's raised as a young man in Pharaoh's court, right? And then after he learns his heritage and he learns who he is and, and he sees the atrocities being committed against his people, he sees one of the guards whipping a Jewish worker, a Hebrew worker, he kills the man and then flees for his life. And he goes to the backside of the Midianite desert. I love that description, the backside of the desert. What's the difference between the backside of the desert and the front side of the desert? I've been to the desert. It ain't real pleasant to begin with. What's the backside of the desert look like? But he, he gets married. He has a, a father-in-law, and he's tending his father-in-law's sheep when all of a sudden he sees this sight. Now, Cynical me, if I start seeing things like this, I'm thinking I probably need to drink more water. All right, he sees a bush that is on fire, but it's not consumed. So he goes to investigate, because that's the first thing you're going to do, right? He goes to investigate, and as he approaches the burning bush, he hears, Moses, Moses, take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus is is sitting at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. 
And Martha is in the kitchen doing the dishes, cooking the food, preparing everything. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening with rapt attention to everything that he's saying. And Martha comes out and she says, Jesus, please, I'm dying here in the kitchen. Can you tell Mary that she needs to get up and help me? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha. Right? So what's significant about these? Well, there's, there's that repetition of the name. Now, I've told you about the, the repetition of a word three times, where you have a word that is repeated, uh, like in Isaiah chapter 6, and you see the vision of the seraphim, and they're flying, right, on either side of God's throne, and they cry out to each other, holy, holy, holy. That's taking that word holy and saying it's the holiest to the superlative degree, right? But the, the, the repetition is an emphasis. It's like bold, italic, underlined, flashing text on your computer, right? Well, here it's only repeated twice. But when it's a name, it's not just a thing of emphasis. It implies an intimacy between the speaker and the listener. So between God and Abraham... God and Abraham have a bond here. Remember, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Moses is being called as the deliverer of God's people. Martha was a friend of Jesus's. Remember, Lazarus was Jesus's friend. When they sent word to Jesus, he wept because Lazarus was dead. There is a level of connection between the person who's speaking and the person who's hearing. Back in Matthew chapter 7. Um, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, I made the statement that one of the scariest, most disturbing statements that Jesus makes is there at the end in chapter 7. Uh, chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, if you want to flip over there. Jesus makes the statement, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, that repetition. Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. These people think that they have an intimate connection with Jesus. And Jesus says, Depart from me, I never knew you. Not only did I not know you now, but I've never known you. We've never had a bond. There's never been a cause for you to think that there's that level of intimacy. That's why that is so disturbing to me, because these are people, if you look at chapter 7 there, the things that they describe when Jesus says, depart from me, they say, we've preached in your name, and we've ministered in your name, and we've driven out demons in your name. We've done all the right stuff. And Jesus says, sorry, you've not done it for the right reasons, because I've never known you. Now, if we get back to our passage this morning, Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. What's the significance of Jerusalem? What is it? 
It's the capital city, right? But more than just the capital city, it is the, it is the seat of the temple. It's where the temple is, where the center of Israel's worship takes place, is there. It's the center of their relationship with God. The heart, the people who should have seen Jesus and known who He was, the people who should have recognized Jesus as God's Son, the people who should have recognized the Messiah when He showed up, the place of the temple where so much had happened. If you think about the things that took place in Jerusalem, Every year, on the Day of Atonement, what happened? All the people came together to confess their sins nationally before God, to make the the, the required sacrifice, to place their sins on the head of the goat and drive it out into the wilderness. This symbol of their relationship with God, their separateness, their apartness, their difference. And not just on the Day of Atonement, but every day there were sacrifices going on at the temple. There were sacrifices made for purity. When a child was born, there was a sacrifice given to dedicate that child to the Lord. When, when a woman had, after a child was born, a woman had a period of time where she was unclean and she had to be purified. Right? All of these things took place at the temple the center of Israel. And yet, at the temple, so much had happened that showed God's people drifted further and further from Him. The money changers that Jesus had just driven out. This is all still taking place within the week between Palm Sunday, and Christ's death. We are probably right now talking about Monday. That this discussion took place. Maybe Tuesday of that week. Jesus walked into the temple courtyard and what did he find? He found a county fair set up where people are getting ripped off And people are actively stopping other people from worship. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests and the Levites were doing what? Nothing. Nothing. And so here, let me set the scene up for you. Right? Jesus comes into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. The people are crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus leaves the city that day, and he goes to Bethany, where he stays with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And as he's coming back the next day, he sees the fig tree, and he curses the fig tree, which is an indication of the curse that God's going to bring on Jerusalem, right? Then he goes to the temple, and he's teaching in the temple courtyard. 
he's teaching the people and he's talking to the people and then you first have the priests come up and they ask the question, where's your authority come from? And he answers, well, where did John's authority come from? Uh, we don't know. Right? And then you get the Pharisees come up with the Herodians and they ask the question, is it legal, is it lawful to pay the Roman tax? Jesus says, whose face is on the coin? Caesar's. Give Caesar what's his. But give God what's his too. Okay, we're going to just go over here. Then the Sadducees show up and they ask the question about the resurrection that they don't believe in. Right? And then the Pharisees come back and they ask another question. And then finally, Jesus stands up and he pronounces this curse, uh, this series of curses on the scribes and the Pharisees because they're prohibiting people from entering the kingdom and they're not entering the kingdom themselves and they're making people twice the disciples of Satan as they are and all of these things over and over and over again. And now we're at the end of that day after Jesus has been teaching in the temple courtyard and he's been saying all these things and finally he gets up and he begins to leave the courtyard and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I wanted to gather your children together like a, a hen brings her chicks together? When does a hen do that with, with her chicks? During a storm. Why? To protect them. That is a, a sign of love and tenderness. What a tender thought. When Jesus starts this lament, this, this cry out for his people. But it's tempered. Because then he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones the people who were sent to her. Kind of puts a little sharp edge on the tenderness. This is the center of Israel. The heart of God's people. And it doesn't have any room for God's word. Because every time, if you look through the Old Testament, if you look through the captivity, when the, the southern kingdom was taken into captivity by, by Babylon, right? You had God's prophets standing up saying, okay, here's what's going to happen. Y'all have not repented, so Babylon's coming, and they're going to take you into captivity, but God wants you to keep working and pray for them and, and be submissive to them and do what you're supposed to do. And then you have the false prophets over here. He's making all that up. We're just fine. Who are the people going to want to believe? The false prophets. What happens to the true prophet? He gets run out of town on a rail, right? He gets murdered. He gets stoned to death. Every time God sends somebody to chastise them and turn them back towards him, what is their response? Kill them. We don't want to hear it. The scribes and the Pharisees who say, had we been alive back then, we wouldn't have been like our fathers and killed the prophets. We would have listened to God's word. And what did Jesus say? Exactly. Yeah, there's a flag on the play. You're full of baloney. Pick your word. Right? 
the purpose of God in sending the prophets was always to call them back to their commitment to follow God's covenant. Do you all remember uh, Joshua chapter 24, verse 15? That should, that should ring familiar in your ears. Joshua 24, 15. That's right, right? I had somebody, when I was in Korea, I had somebody challenge me with that verse. First time I've ever had somebody challenge me with a verse of Scripture. He said, you know, what was so significant about Joshua saying that? Like, uh, I don't know what was significant about it. Where is that in the book of Joshua? Chapter 24, where is that? Front, middle, end? End. What happens at the end of the book of Joshua? Joshua dies, right? And he's standing before the people of Israel after they've come into the promised land and they have conquered the promised land. Joshua's on his deathbed and he says, okay, you got to quit sitting on the fence. You cannot serve God and the gods of Egypt or the gods of the people in the land or the gods that your father was chased after. You can't, you cannot sit on the fence. You pick. You pick God or you pick whichever one of these seems right to you. But as for me and my family, Joshua's about to die. And he made the commitment for his family. We will serve the Lord. And what did the people of Israel say? We're going to follow God. And what did Joshua say? No, you're not. No, you're not. Backtrack to the book of Deuteronomy. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, just before Moses dies, Moses has the people standing on the other side of the Jordan River before they enter the promised land. And he gives them the entire covenant promise again. And he says, if you will obey God, he will be your God and you will be his people. And what do the people say? We will do it. And Moses says, no, you won't. But your word will be a witness against you. Every time God sends somebody to his people, it is to remind them of their covenant with him. Parts of God's covenant were a promise that is unconditional. He made parts of the promise that were very, very clear that I will do this for you, period. But then there were parts of the promise that were, if you do this, then I will do this. Uh, this is this is programming language, okay? If, then. If this, then that. Else, in other words, if you don't do this, then I will do this over here. And it's always, if you obey, I will bless you. Otherwise, if you disobey, there will be consequences. We understand this, Right? You have a job. Your boss says you're supposed to be at work at 7 o'clock in the morning. The implication is if you're there at 7 o'clock in the morning, then you get to keep your job, else you get fired. Right? Simple math. And how did Israel respond to those people who came to remind them of the covenant. Kill them. Kill them. Chase them out of town. We don't want to hear it. 
Sure is a good thing we're not like that, right? Yeah, we might not kill them. We don't want to hear them. We don't want to listen. Jesus said, I'd love to gather your children together to protect them, to hold them close. When God corrects us, when He sends that correction that our reaction to is always kill Him, get rid of it, He's not trying to harm us. It is to gather us in and to keep us from harm. It's not because He wants to be cruel. It's not because He wants to to dangle that that's something in front of us and say, no, you can't have this. Sure looks really good, doesn't it? But you can't have this. That's not God. It's not because He delights in the punishment for sin. God is not sitting in His celestial throne, watching over heaven, seeing the people uh, in hell being tormented. He's not sitting up there going, <laughs> that's not God. He is not some cosmic killjoy who is out to keep you from enjoying the life that He's created. That's not who God is. He's not an omnipotent sadist. He has always desired for His people to have a relationship with Him. Is there anybody you know that you want to have a closer relationship with? I'll bet there is, right? Because if you're a parent, you have children, you want to have a close relationship with them, right? If you're a spouse, you want to have a closer relationship with your spouse. If you're a child, you may not realize it at this point in your life, but you want to have a closer relationship with your parents. If you have siblings, you want to have a closer relationship with your siblings. Deep down, we all want to be closer. God wants to be closer to His people. I think Jesus described it probably the best when He gave the parable of the prodigal son. I don't really like that term, prodigal son. It's more the prodigal father. Because prodigal means lavish. And in the parable, after the son demands his inheritance and he goes off to a far-off country and he blows it all on wine, women, and song and he winds up eating with the pigs. Actually, he's not even eating as good as the pigs. He comes home and what's his father do? Runs to meet him. This Look at this picture. Close your minds and picture this, right? You've got an older man, probably in his 60s or 70s, We're talking the Middle East, so he is wearing a one-piece robe, basically, a a long dress, okay? It is not flowing, okay? It does not move real well, so you don't run in these things. You walk. He's got sandals on his feet, and he's standing on the hill, and he sees his son coming towards him, and Jesus says he ran. There ain't but one way to run in those dresses. I'm going to call it a dress. Don't get hung up on that term. All right? 
So what you did was you, you pick up the dress, right? And you kind of gather it up and you tie it around your waist, kind of tucking it together and, and tying it so it frees your legs up to move. So here is this, here is this 65, 70-year-old man, long white beard, gathering up and tying his garment together so he can run to meet his son. And what does he do when he gets to his son? Yeah, the, the picture there, he falls on his neck, right? This is more than a hug. This is, if you want to know what I'm talking about, grab a box of tissues, go on out to YouTube and look up military reunion videos where people come back from deployments. I cannot watch them. I got friends that post these things all over Facebook, and as I'm flipping through the pictures on Facebook, I hit one of those videos, I've got to skip it. Because, man, I'm a blubbering mess. Because I've been on the other end of that. That's the kind of reunion that the Father has. That's the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. When Jesus says He wants to gather the children of Israel in together, that's the picture. He wants His children close. By the way, good news. We're grafted into Israel. He wants to be that close to us too. Now I want you to think about the setting again. Jesus is still in the temple courtyard. He just got done, he just got done with his prophet hat. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. I've got a microphone. I have artificial building acoustics. He's in an open courtyard. Remember the size of the courtyard I told you about? Right? This thing's huge. I'll guarantee nobody had a problem hearing Jesus. As he's saying that, woe to the scribes and the Pharisees because of this. Woe to the scribes and the Pharisees because of this. And now he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. People are listening to what he says. People are paying attention to Jesus at this point. I mean, if nothing else, they're waiting to see what the Pharisees are going to do. Because the Pharisees aren't exactly known for being a, a, a milk toast kind of wishy-washy group. And then, when he says that he'd long to gather the children together, he's really speaking in terms that identify him as more than just some preacher guy. People notice. And when people notice, they're going to pay attention to what he says. And here in, in verse 38, he says something that probably caused whiplash. Heads turn so fast. Your house is left to you desolate. Wait, what? He's in the temple courtyard, and it's packed. It's like the state fair. There are people everywhere. And Jesus says, your house is left to you desolate. 
What's the word desolate mean? Empty, bare, barren, deserted. What? Can you imagine what people are thinking? Not only that, but he's, he's in the temple courtyard. If you look beyond the walls of the temple courtyard, what do you see? You see Jerusalem. Not only is the temple in Jerusalem, but there's a palace in Jerusalem. Not only is there a palace in Jerusalem, but it's a large city. (coughs) It's a city on a hill. There was activity everywhere. Doesn't look desolate. Doesn't look deserted. What is Jesus talking about? He's looking forward. He's looking forward to an event that he just said was going to happen within this generation. Remember back in uh, last week's lesson? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, some you will flog in the synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Your house is left to you desolate. What happens 40 years from when Jesus says this? The destruction of Jerusalem. There's a rebellion on the part of the Jews and the Romans attack Jerusalem. Almost the entirety of chapter 24 will be talking about the end time and the destruction of Jerusalem. He makes kind of a cryptic statement. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's funny. How did his entry into Jerusalem start? (laughs) Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? Was he saying he was going away, leaving Jerusalem? No. Was he saying his public ministry was over? No. Was he saying he was going to turn invisible? No. No, he was talking about his future return. He wasn't talking about leaving the city. He wasn't talking about leaving public ministry. He was, he was not talking about being invisible. He was seen by people during the rest of the week in Jerusalem. The disciples saw him. They ate with him. They celebrated the Passover with him in the upper room, right? They prayed with him in the garden until he fell asleep. The people who arrested him saw him, right? Because remember when they found him in the garden? Right? And they said, we're looking for Jesus in Nazareth. And he stood up and he said, oh, that's me. And they all fell over. Talk about powerful presence. They fell over. It helps that he said, I am. He was most certainly speaking about his return when he came back. 
Now we get to the, 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 the real intro to the rest of chapter 24, where he finally, he leaves the temple courtyard. And as they're walking away, I don't know why the disciples did this. All right, it could be they were responding to his statement that your house is left to you desolate. So they were, they were there. They're probably right along with the crowd. What is he talking about? Jerusalem is a thriving city. And as they get outside the temple and they start winding their way down the hill, you stop and you look at the temple. You look at the, look. It's gleaming. This was, this was Herod's temple. This wasn't the second temple. This wasn't Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed when the southern kingdom was taken into captivity. The Babylonians came in, pillaged it. The second temple was the one that was rebuilt that the people who had seen the first temple were weeping over. All right? And when we say it was rebuilt, right, it was like a lot of these places down along the coast where it used to be a, a three-story mansion with a big front yard and the, and the big sweeping staircases. Katrina came through, and then it was rebuilt as a tiny house or a Katrina cottage on the same land. That was the second temple. It was there. It had the right dimensions. It had the right rooms, but it was really, really, really disappointing. And then you had Herod the Great, who wanted the people to love him as the king. So he took on himself this expansion project, and man, he blew the temple up. He built expansions and, and, and gilded things with gold, and it was, it was spectacular. You read some of the historical accounts, and Herod's temple was probably one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. And so they're walking down the hill from the temple courtyard, and the disciples are like, Jesus, look, isn't it gorgeous? Like, quit being such a downer. Your house is left to you desolate. What are you talking about? We're the people of God. I can guarantee they were not expecting Jesus' answer. Truly I say to you, generally speaking, in Scripture, depending on your translation, when you see that word truly, um, some of the translations use the old word verily, right? Um, in some cases, they'll actually say verily, verily, truly, truly, right? The Greek word there is amen, which is truth. And in many cases, in the modern English, it's it's kind of redundant to say uh, truly, truly, right? But in many cases, that's the it actually says in the Greek, or Aramaic, because it's not a Greek word, it's amen, amen. So you have truth, and then you have true truth. So he's foot stomping. You might want to pay attention to this. Truly I say to you, there won't be left here one stone upon another. This place is going to be destroyed. There was probably not a single more shocking thing that Jesus could have said to the disciples. Which is why when we start the rest of chapter 24, they're going to start asking him, when, when, when is it going to happen? 
We need to evacuate. We need to tell the people. We need to let people know. And we'll deal with that when we start next week. Now, before we leave, I'm going to do something weird. I don't know that I have ever done this before. But I'm going to assign you homework. (laughs) What? All right. See, all have a Bible, right? If you do not have a Bible, but you have access to a smartphone, you can always go out to www.biblegateway.com and find one. Uversion is a free app you can download. Olive Tree, Bible Gateway has their own app you can download. They're all over the place. If you'd rather have a paper copy, I will authorize you to take one of the paper copies under the chair. Bring it back next week, please. We can't afford to replace them. (laughs) And I'm not kidding. All right? But I want you this week to read verses 3 through 14 of chapter 24. 3 through 14. That's only like 12 verses. It's not that big, right? I'm sure we can handle it in seven days. You could even read two verses a day and take a day off. But I want everybody to read, before we get here next week, I want everybody to read... Chapter 24, verses 3 through 14. You might want to write that down, since I didn't give you a bulletin to put it into, right? You might want to, you might want to put it on a little piece of scratch paper, or, or write it on the palm of your hand, or set a reminder in your phone. Verses 3 through 14, before we show up next week. Okay? Can everybody handle that homework assignment? Okay. Wait till next week.